It's Wednesday. That means we have Courtney Astolfi, the Cleveland City Hall reporter on Today in Ohio. The news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Courtney and Lisa Garvin and Laura Johnston. And we're going to start with Courtney. How are Republican Ohio legislators who engineered supermajorities in the state house using their powers in something called preemption to dictate life in the largely democratic cities like the one you cover courtney yeah this is something it feels like it surfaces every time it's just it's kind of sitting there on on cleveland's shoulder on columbus and cincinnati's shoulder this concept of home rule it is baked into ohio's constitution it was added in 1912 and it really it was set up to give Ohio cities the right to pass laws for themselves. And and that that applies so long as their ordinances are not in conflict with the state's general laws. So let's back up a little bit. Ohio cities obviously are overwhelmingly uh, democratic. They are pockets of blue in this increasingly red state. Like you said, the Republicans, a lot of a lot of them representing the rural parts of the state have just this historic supermajority control of the state house. And they've increasingly focused over the last 20 years on telling cities what kinds of laws they can and most of the time can't place upon themselves. And and it's 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 chipped away at this this home rule concept that that Ohio's supposed to be governed by and and we've seen republicans in the state house stop cities from enacting their own laws on my goodness so many different categories of topics here puppies fracking guns minimum wage plastic bags red light cameras i mean the list the list goes on and you see just this this tension and a growing tension. And and it does not appear based on Jake Zuckerman's wonderful reporting in this story, that this trend isn't really going to change anytime soon. The state house is going to keep telling cities what they can't do for themselves. Well, as almost everything does now, this actually has some pertinence for issue one on the August 8th ballot. The, the legislature, which is largely run by rural Republicans that don't like cities, are passing laws that limit what cities can do. The only option people who live in the cities have if they want to fight back is to change the Ohio Constitution to, to get what they need, to go to the Ohio voters and say, we think this issue should be X. And the Republicans in the legislature want to stop that. That's what issue one is about. They want to make it nearly impossible for voters, the people who who own the government, to change their constitution. This this would just cement this lack of representation. It's taxation without representation. The cities are the machine that generates all the money that runs the state. And yet they have no representation anymore. And it's where most of Ohioans are are concentrated in cities. So it's 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 a large swath of who Ohioans are who, who can't make rules for themselves under this this kind of philosophy. And 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 Jake talked to the executive director of the Ohio Mayors Alliance. We we've seen a recent example of this play out in Columbus. There's there had been a couple weekends in a row in downtown Columbus where there was gun violence. Over the course of two weekends, 10 people were shot. And the mayor there put in a curfew. He wanted to shut down street vendors. And the the idea there was to, you know, reduce violence by just reducing foot traffic and getting people out after a certain hour. Rural lawmakers almost immediately introduced 
legislation on the heels of that Columbus move to outlaw curfews. And and that 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 kind of puts this in into a into the right framing here because because the state lawmakers who introduced that legislation to stop Columbus from doing what it thought it needed to do to take care of violence, one was from Huron. It's a tiny town in Erie County. I, I covered crime there. There is very, very little crime there. I'm not sure why why they would be legislating this. And then another lawmaker from a very small township outside of Columbus with just 45,000 people. So this really shows how that rural influence is legislating for the cities through this issue of home rule. And and the executive director of the Ohio Mayor's Alliance asked to weigh in on this topic, said, you know, residents and cities are demanding action on, on a very concerning threat of public safety, talking about this Columbus issue. And the legislature has completely tied our hands. And then the legislature turns around and blames us when violent crime runs amok in our cities. He described it as a very difficult challenge. And this is something you hear Mayor Justin Bibb talk about a lot. There's a crime issue in Cleveland. Bibb says we need Columbus to pass gun laws to help us out. It's just this cycle. Well, exactly. And it starts with gerrymandering. If if the state legislature actually reflected the makeup of the state, there wouldn't be super majorities and that the cities would have some sway. But with the gerrymandering, which is illegal because we voted, 70% of us voted to change the system to set up the legislature and they defied it. They didn't do it. If that had been followed, the cities would have a voice. That's why issue one becomes so important. If it's a gerrymandered legislature that's out of sync with the state, the only option left is for a citizen initiative to get something onto the ballot in the Constitution. It's an interesting story by, by Jake that really kind of puts it all in perspective, but, but it really puts it in the perspective of issue one and people ought to be voting on August 8th. You want to know like why these legislators are like, you can't have a curfew. I mean, it doesn't affect them. Why do they think that they need to legislate it? So many things you look over that list from puppies to fracking to gun violence to plastic bags. It's like, if you don't want it, fine. But why tell someone else they can't have it? I just don't understand. They're bought and paid for. I mean, that's the lobbyists. The plastic bag lobby didn't want the the plastic bag ban, so they go buy these guys off. I mean, if HB6 has showed us anything, it's that these guys are for sale. And so they keep doing nonsensical things because they're in the pocket of the lobbyists. It's all connected. (laughs) You're listening to Today in Ohio. Does Attorney General Dave Yost believe anti-discrimination laws block facility managers for setting rules about which bathrooms transgender people can use? Lisa, not really a surprise, although he did seem to go further than he needed to in making his case. Yeah, Attorney General Dave Yost issued an advisory opinion after Greene County Prosecutor David Hayes asked if state law or a recent Supreme Court of the United States ruling on LGBTQ discrimination prevents Ohio public facilities from requiring that transgender people use the bathroom for the gender they had at birth. So uh, the state anti-discrimination law says that managers of public accommodations cannot deny anyone full access to facilities except for reasons that are applicable across all race, religion, and gender, you know, groups. So uh, Yost said that, you know, separate sex bathrooms are not in violation. He says what it does is it ensures that no one loses the right, 
but he says separating by sex and not gender identity stems from an inherent right to privacy in bathrooms and locker rooms and other such public facilities. But he went further, as you said, he said he was concerned that cisgender men would take advantage of these loose bathroom policies and victimize women and girls. The advisory opinion is non-binding, but it does act as legal authority in the court system. The idea that cisgender men would use this to go in and ogle women who are in the stalls to begin with, that, that's the ridiculous part of this. It's, it's needlessly inflammatory. And he didn't need to do it. It's just, think about it. That's illegal. You're not allowed to go in mm-hmm. and invade people's privacy now. So, mm-hmm. so it wouldn't change anything, but it's there. It's culture war stuff. It's, it's just Dave Yost. Every once in a while, he goes down that road, and it's shameful because it, he didn't need to say it. He had made his legal case for why this does not violate the law. Why add that? Yeah, that actually is surprising to me because he doesn't seem to do a whole lot of virtue signaling in my case. That's in my opinion, that's outside the law. But yeah, this is, and of course, you know, I, this whole transgender bathroom thing started in Texas and I was a reporter back then when it happened. And that's exactly what they jumped on. They had a commercial showing this little girl sitting in a stall and the door opening and her looking frightened. I mean, so from the very beginning, they've used this straight men are going to go into bathrooms to hassle people. Yeah, I know. And again, he didn't need to do it. So shame on him for doing it. You are listening to Today in Ohio. How did a Bay Village Catholic priest rant about LGBTQ issues in a Sunday sermon end up with police being called to the church? Laura, we're still trying to get more details on this one, but this is an interesting story out of Bay Village. Yeah, this is the Reverend Timothy Garrow. He's the pastor of St. Raphael's in Bay Village. And at the end of his homily, which was on Sunday, which was Pentecost, so the end of the Easter season when the Holy Spirit's supposed, you know, that's what it's about. It's about the Holy Spirit. He went off on a tirade about the Community Hero Award given by the Los Angeles Dodgers for service to an LGBTQ group to a group of fake nuns, basically, that satirized the Catholic Church. And he said that it defames the name of every Christian here on earth, burns a hole in my heart, angers me and embitters me, and it should you. This was being streamed online, but that video has since been taken down. And then it's called the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They're based in California. So not a local group, but he was obviously incensed about this. And a person stood up in the congregation, said that queer and trans people also carry the Holy Spirit. And that was very hurtful and then left that. And it sounds like the whole thing kind of devolved. People went out to the parking lot to comfort this person. The police were called. It's been uh, a lot of conversation on the Bay Village Facebook page with people sticking up for the priest and people condemning what he said. What, what, What this person did is they went up to the microphone to say, hey, I was baptized by you, Mm -hmm. and this is supposed to be a church that's about loving messages, and what you just said isn't about loving. It was a brave thing to do. And then three parishioners got up, and, and he went out. Others had left this because they were offended, and they were consoling this person who, as I understand it, was crying in the parking lot 
when another parishioner came out and was so aggressive that police were called and we're going to get the body cam footage. Shame on Bay Village police. They gave us a almost blank police report. They're not talking about it. They're supposed to work for the taxpayers. They're supposed to work for the people and to cover this up the way they're trying to do is completely bogus. It won't stand. We'll get the body cam footage. We're going to get the information. So it's a false attempt by Bay Village police, but it's shameful that they're trying to cover it all up. It is. And it's been a really interesting response. I mean, there's been a former parishioner and a member of this group called Bay Village Anti-Racism Network wrote a letter saying that he let loose and brought the cultural war into the pulpit, that he should apologize. The the priest did not want to comment for a story that Molly Walsh wrote, but the Diocese of Cleveland completely stuck up for the priest and basically said that he was preaching and it should be supported. I mean, I was actually taken aback by the diocese response said that people are not allowed to disrupt the holy sacrifice of mass to express their opinion. And that if you want to defend the church, you should do so lovingly and without any way threatening or committing violence. But it didn't sound like a loving message from the priest in the first place. Well, but, but they're right. You're not supposed to go and interrupt the mass. That's not part of what congregants at a Catholic mass do. So this person was breaking with tradition, but I think they were so offended by what the priest said. They felt like they had to stand up. Right. We should say that the object of the priest's scorn does have very offensive to Catholic names. Ted Dieden wrote an entire column about the, the idiocy of the Dodgers in this thing. First, they, they want to honor the group. Then when the Catholics get mad, they decide they're not going to honor the group. And then they, they get pressure again. Now they're going to honor the group. It's, it's a mess, but, mm-hmm. it, but, but it is offensive. I mean, it's, yes. it's kind of surprising that the Dodgers would honor a group that uses names that I'm sure are satirical that are offensive to Catholics. But the whole idea is it's a pride event. And so for a priest to stand there and say the Dodgers have this under assault when this is all about Pride Month and Pride Week, it 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 does offend people that are LGBTQ. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I don't agree with this. The sisters are perpetual whatever, indulgence. And I I do think that's offensive. And I feel like the Dodgers should have done their homework a little bit more before they decided to honor them. But I don't think that gives the priest the reason to bring politics into this homily and and offend people in the church. Because it seems like, and I was not there and I don't know how it was delivered, but it, it offended people who were there to be part of the Christian community. And that is the whole basis of Christianity, right? Treat other people as you would like to be treated. Acceptance, love, I mean, forgiveness. It is not an embittered religion. Right. It's not supposed That's- to be. No, that, it's not supposed to, to to be what it was. I just, I have this dread that it was Ted's column that set this priest off. And I hope we're not the cause of all of this. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Every few years, Clevelanders get excited by the prospects for the subway deck of the Veterans Memorial Bridge, which normally sits empty. The talk usually involves the temporary opening of the deck to tours. It's happening again. Courtney, is there something different this time around? Definitely something different this time around. So as the county prepares to open up that second uh, often closed level of the Veterans Memorial Bridge, those events are going to be open to the public June 23rd and 24th. But it's interesting to note that first day it's open, there's going to be a community conversation hosted. They basically want the public's feedback here about 
What are your ideas for keeping this permanently open? How do you want to see this bridge reactivated and reopened to pedestrians in line with what, you know, County Executive Chris Ronane has has kind of talked about? He envisions more for the bridge instead of just that once every few years opening to the public. He wants that underside open for future pedestrian use. He talks about, you know, the concept of a park in the sky. There's lots of big projects going on in the flats below the bridge. And, you know, folks who are interested in breathing new life into the second level of the bridge really want to seize on that and make it a destination. It seems like a place you could even have a restaurant or some sit down places to get a drink or get something to eat. It, I just, um, every time it comes up, it's okay. You can tour it and then it, stays shut for the next two years i don't remember when the have last you, time have you open. been in it before i have not courtney no I, I wanted to i missed the one in in the last time i believe was i went when, yeah yeah and they had all sorts of light installations in it yeah it was really cool because you went at night and and it's a lot bigger than you'd think like there's a lot of room in there I mean, it, it, it held the original streetcar station and tracks. I mean, you've got to you got to believe that there is some ability to put some weight on there. Like you were saying, Chris, some some destinations, grab a drink or I wonder if that could be its future. Yeah, it's just such wasted space and it's primo space with great views. I hope this does work this time and we do something with it. Uh, what are the two days people can go and tour it? Yeah, so on June 23rd is that opportunity to do the community conversation about what you want to see in the future. And then June 24th is when it's just kind of open. You can go on your own and kind of explore and and not really be having those kinds of conversations. But whichever you're interested in, you can venture down to the bridge and um, details, parking, all those kinds of things are available on cleveland.com. Okay, you are listening to Today in Ohio. Looks like the Republican field for the U.S. Senate in Ohio will be a little less crowded than had been predicted. Lisa, who's out? Warren Davidson, the U.S. congressman from Troy, Ohio, announced he will not be running for Sherrod Brown's Senate seat. He says instead he's going to run for re-election to the U.S. House. He was elected to... Uh, in 2016 to replace former House Speaker John Boehner, and he's also a member of the Hard Right House Freedom Caucus, and he said that running for Senate would have removed him from the fight in the House and for one and a half years while he's campaigning and fundraising, and he says the narrow majority in the House means that his vote will be essential on important party line issues. Davidson was on everybody's lips. Everybody was waiting for him to announce. He uh, did have a, like, you know, he created a campaign committee and everything. But if he had run, he probably would have gotten the support of a D.C. anti-tax group called Club for Growth. Club for Growth spent $11 million backing Josh Mandel in the Senate primary for Rob Portman's seat last year. So the question is, who are they going to back now? Yeah, I, it's a good question because it sounds like the field will be Matt Dolan, Bernie Moreno, the, the car dealer, and possibly Frank LaRose, the Secretary of State, who's trying to destroy democracy in the state of Ohio. Not a great field. I don't know which one would get that support. Well, and, you know, and of course, they're all angling for Trump's endorsement, except Matt Dolan. Um, you know, so um, will he endorse Bernie Moreno? I mean, he's backed him before, so we'll see. But yeah, this is interesting because we had seven, I believe, for Portman's seat, which was a Republican, you know, seat. Um, so it's interesting. Maybe they think that Sherrod Brown is not as beatable as everyone is saying that he is. 
Yeah, well, I think it's going to be a hard fight to take out Sherrod. It's possible based on how the state leans, but I think you're right. Some some people are probably thinking, I've got a safe seat where I am. Why mess with it? Interesting development, though. That was not what we had been expecting from Mr. Davidson. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have been talking this year about how child care costs depressed the number of women in the workplace, and reporter Gretchen Crowen illustrated that on a micro level with the story of one mom. Laura, this was a, a story that just crystallized the issue. What is the mom's story? Yeah, absolutely. This is Elizabeth Bailey. And when we started our Rethinking Child Care series, she emailed me and was basically like, this is spot on. So she has a college degree, work experience. She's 30 years old and came out of COVID with a job she loved as a payroll specialist. She said she was successful. She felt supported, appreciated, and was on the track for advancement. But it didn't pay more than her childcare cost. So she has three kids, and after four months, she had to switch childcare, and her cost went up. She was making about six hundred, sorry, seven hundred and sixty dollars a week before taxes and payroll deductions like health insurance, and the cost of her childcare was eight hundred dollars a week. So basically, she was losing money by working. So she decided that she had to take a step back. She eventually wants to work. She hopes there's going to be more manageable child care costs in the future. But for right now, she's taking care of the kids full time and her husband's the sole wage earner. What, what I loved about this story is we've been talking on the macro level about how women are not is robust in the workplace because of the cost of childcare. We talked about how in Quebec, they've greatly increased the number of women in the workplace because they subsidize childcare. Well, here's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. She would be a worker. I mean, employers everywhere are crying that they cannot get enough qualified applicants for their positions. She'd be one if we did something to help with childcare costs. This crystallizes it. So, This should be a conservative issue as well as a liberal issue. If you want to increase the number of people in the workplace because it's good for the economy, how about helping people out with their child care? Yeah, it is good for the economy. When you look at Quebec, they went from about 67% of women employed to about 82%. And that amount that they generate from the payroll taxes of those women working is enough to pay for the entire child care system in Quebec, which is mind boggling, but makes a lot of fiscal sense, right? If you are just looking from a fiscal perspective, perspective, women who want to work should be able to work and we should support them because it's good for the entire economy. And when people take the time out, even if she goes back to work eventually, she might be taking a big hit for the entirety of her career because of the wage gap. She's missing out on on growing her career and getting raises and getting more experience and she'll never be able to get that back. And just to put this in perspective, the annual average cost of childcare in Cleveland is about $11,160. That's for one kid. That's a lot of money. Well, this should be a John Houston issue. He's the guy that's constantly going on and on about all the unfilled positions and we need the workers. Here's a quick path to getting them. They just have to put some money behind it to get the investment started. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Anyone who has worked in a newsroom has seen them, the often crazy court filings of prison inmates sitting behind bars with nothing else to do but pretend to be lawyers. But we have a case of a guy who started as a prison lawyer and now is an actual lawyer right here in Ohio. Courtney, who is he and where does he do his lawyering these days? What a guy. What a phenomenal story. This this story is about Damon Davis. And and the story kind of opens with him starting his law career. So it was back in 2008, 
He was in a federal prison in Kentucky. He was serving out a sentence for cocaine possession, intent to distribute, and a weapons charge. And that's where an older inmate took him under his wing and his law career started. The older inmate taught him how to pour through trials transcripts to find issues that could be appealed that could help other inmates, you know, shorten their sentences and get out. And 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 Davis took to it and, and he kept working at it. He was released in 2011. He put himself through law school. And now at age 48, he was in the class of Ohio's newest lawyers this year, standing up there with the Ohio Supreme Court Chief Justice. And he was admitted to the bar. He's now working as a municipal trial counsel in the Hamilton County Public Defender's Office. It's an interesting story because so many of the prison lawyers are not good. We, we get these handwritten, scrawled motions and things in the mail. They copy us on, on a lot of them. We get them fairly regularly. Um, this is cool that he actually, you know, put his nose to the grindstone, figured it out, and is actually a lawyer now. Yeah, and and you know he kind of he he talked about his path here, how he how he how he got into jail. You know, he was working at an Amazon warehouse. It sounds like he needed a knee surgery. He didn't have short term disability with that job. He was facing eviction, and he he started selling drugs. But like you said, he then ran with it when he found this talent in down in Ken, the Kentucky prison and. When he came out, he he got a job at a Jif peanut butter plant in Lexington, and that happened to offer him full tuition reimbursement. You know, there's the discussion of it's not that easy to, of course, do this kind of bootstrap kind of thing. It was he overcame so much to get here. He enrolled in community college, later went to the University of Kentucky, worked through the night, went to class the next morning, and and then he eventually started working with the Ohio Innocence Project. And I got to throw this out there. I thought this was such a great idea. While he was working with the Innocence Project, he wrote a paper proposing the idea of contactless policing. So, you know, those situations where officers pull a lot of times young black men over for minor traffic violations, turns violent in the case of, for example, Philando Castile, dead, you know? And so Davis's idea to remedy those situations escalating, he's like, just just issue citations by mail. And then they're then there's ha. no need for a conflict, right? We've, and, we've talked about that recently. We've talked about that with the seatbelt thing. I mean, that's what they should do. They have your plate, just send you the ticket, don't pull you over. For tinted windows, for broken taillights, all that stuff. There's no reason to pull people over for that. It's interesting that he's pursuing that because that would reduce the risk to both police and the drivers. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Meadow City Nursery in Collinwood has a special collection of plants for sale. Lisa, you're a gardener. What is this place doing? Yeah, and all my Facebook gardening groups are all abuzz about this. They've posted links to the Cleveland.com article. So Meadow, Meadow City Nursery is at East 152nd and Waterloo in the North Collinwood neighborhood. It was founded by Julie Slater and Alyssa Zierley. Slater is a, has a graduate degree in ecological restoration. So she got permission from private landowners in Northeast Ohio to collect seeds from undisturbed and intact woodland and meadow ecosystems. 
worms. So they're going to take these seeds and they're all Ohio natives and they're growing them for sale. So they have things like blue-eyed grass, Jacob's ladder, foam flower, lots of different asters, Joe pie weed, and so forth. And Zierly developed an app that allows them to document the locations of the parent plants from which they collected seeds so they can have an exact pedigree of all the seeds and plants that they sell. Um, they have an education and outreach specialist there, Dave Tomaszewski. He's also a birding expert. So they'll be leading free workshops on planting natives, decreasing your lawn space and using more native plants in your landscape. And this, these uh, events and workshops will coincide with the Waterloo Arts District's first Friday, Friday gallery hop. So yeah, I'm excited to go down there and check out what they have. I looked online to look at their plant catalog and it's, it's very very interesting. And, you know, we talked as a corollary to No Mo May, we talked about planting more Ohio natives. So this is very timely. Well, what's nice about this is that the local pollinators, this is what they're familiar with. So you're, you're increasing the number of pollinating plants that, Mm -hmm. that the local pollinators already use. And you're right. The the No Mo May was silly and goofy. This is the much smarter way to go. If you want to help create more pollinators in Northeast Ohio, these kinds of plants. I'm fascinated by this one. And you said that uh, your gardening sites are filled up with, with links to it? Oh, yeah. I'm on a couple of different Facebook gardening sites, and I looked this morning, and, and two of them had posted that Cleveland.com article. And everyone's like, oh, when are we going to go? Let's go together. So, yeah, the excitement's there. This was a Susan Bronstein story, right, Laura? Yes, it was. Yeah. She's great. <laughs> she just comes up with no end of interesting gardening pieces. And the re- very plugged in. And I do like how she writes and that she's she was comparing her to Johnny Appleseed, right? Like maybe we'll call her right. Julie Meadowseed at some point. Yes. Yeah, very, very cool. Check out the story. It's on cleveland.com. That's it for the Wednesday episode. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back Thursday. I'm sure there'll be some new news to talk about. Mm-hmm.